You are listening to The Catholic Wire. Welcome to another episode of What Every Catholic Should Know. We are continuing our series on the Baltimore Catechism number three, and today we'll be looking at Lesson 12 on the Attributes and Marks of the Church. This is your host, Brother Alexius, and I am joined by Father Zepeda and Father Saunders. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thank you, Brother. As usual, um, we'll go into the questions and then we'll discuss them. There's a lot of questions this time, so they'll be in kind of uh, large chunks. So, I'll start with the first question on the attributes and marks of the Church. What is an attribute? An attribute is any characteristic or quality that a person or thing may be said to have. All perfections or imperfections are attributes. What is a mark? A mark is a given and known sign by which a thing can be distinguished from all others of its kind. Thus, a trademark is used to distinguish the article bearing it from all the imitations of the same article. How do we know that the Church must have the four marks and three attributes usually ascribed or given to it? We know that the Church must have these four marks and three attributes from the words of Christ given in the Holy Scripture and in the teaching of the Church from its beginning. Can the Church have the four marks without the three attributes? The Church cannot have the four marks without the three attributes, because the three attributes necessarily come with the marks, and without them the marks could not exist. Why are both marks and attributes necessary in the Church? They are both necessary, for the marks teach us its external or visible qualities, while the attributes teach us its internal or invisible qualities. It is easier to discover the marks than the attributes, for it is easier to see that the Church is one than that it is infallible. What are the attributes of the Church? Authority, infallibility, and indefectibility. What is authority? Authority is the power which one person has over another, so as to be able to justly exact obedience. Rulers have authority over their subjects, parents over their children, and teachers over their scholars. From whom must all persons derive whatever lawful authority they possess? All persons must derive whatever lawful authority they possess from God himself, from whom they receive it directly or indirectly. Therefore, to disobey our lawful superiors is to disobey God himself, and hence such disobedience is always sinful. What do you mean by the authority of the Church? By the authority of the Church, I mean the right and power which the Pope and the bishops, as the successors of the apostles, have to teach and to govern the faithful. What do you mean by the infallibility of the Church? By the infallibility of the Church, I mean that the Church cannot err when it teaches a doctrine of faith or morals. What do we mean by a doctrine of faith or morals? By a doctrine of faith or morals, we mean the revealed teaching that refers to whatever we must believe and do in order to be saved. How do you know that the Church cannot err? I know that the Church cannot err because Christ promised that the Holy Ghost would remain with it forever and save it from error. If, therefore, the Church has erred, the Holy Ghost must have abandoned it, 
and Christ has failed to keep his promise, which is a thing impossible. Since the church cannot err, could it ever be reformed in its teaching of faith or morals? Since the church cannot err, it could never be reformed in its teaching of faith or morals. Those who say the church needs reformation in faith or morals accuse our Lord of falsehood and deception. When does the church teach infallibly? The church teaches infallibly when it speaks through the Pope and bishops united in general council, or through the Pope alone when he proclaims to all the faithful a doctrine of faith or morals. What is necessary that the Pope may speak infallibly or ex cathedra? That the Pope may speak infallibly or ex cathedra, first, he must speak on a subject of faith or morals. Second, he must speak as the vicar of Christ and to the whole church. Third, he must indicate his intention to teach by certain words. Is the Pope infallible in everything he says and does? No, the Pope is not infallible in everything he says and does, because the Holy Ghost was not promised to make him infallible in everything, but only in matters of faith and morals for the whole Church. Nevertheless, the Pope's opinion on any subject deserves our greatest respect on account of his learning, experience, and dignity. Can the Pope commit sin? The Pope can commit sin, and he must seek forgiveness in the sacrament of penance, as others do. Infallibility does not prevent him from sinning, but from teaching falsehood when he speaks ex cathedra, that means as a teacher of the church. Oh, thank you for anticipating our next question, Father. What does oh. ex cathedra mean? <laughs> cathedra means a seat, and ex means out of. Therefore, ex cathedra means speaking from the seat or official place held by Peter, St. Peter and his successors as the head of the whole church. Why is the chief church in a diocese called a cathedral? It's called a cathedral because the bishop's cathedra, that is, his seat or throne, is erected in it, and because he celebrates all important feasts and performs all his special duties in it. How many popes have governed the church from St. Peter to Pius XI? From St. Peter to Pius XI, 261 popes have governed the church, and many of them have been remarkable for their zeal, prudence, learning, and sanctity. What does antipope mean, and who are the antipopes? Antipope means a pretended pope. The antipopes were men who, by the aid of faithless Christians or others, unlawfully seized and claimed the papal power, while the lawful pope was in prison or exiled. Why must the pope sometimes warn us on political and other matters? He must sometimes warn us on these matters, because whatever nations or men do is either good or bad, just or unjust. And wherever the Pope discovers falsehood, wickedness, or injustice, he must speak against it and defend the truths of faith and morals. He must protect also the temporal rights and property of the Church committed to his care. What do we mean by the temporal power of the Pope? By that we mean the right which the Pope has as a temporal or ordinary ruler to govern the states and manage the properties that have rightfully come into the possession of the Church. How did the Pope acquire, and how was he deprived, of temporal power? The Pope acquired the temporal power in a just manner by the consent of those who had a right to bestow it. He was deprived of it in an unjust manner by political changes. How was the temporal power useful to the Church? It was useful to the Church, first, because it gave the Pope the complete independence necessary for the government of the Church and for the defense of truth and virtue. And second, it enabled him to do much for the spread of the true religion, by giving alms for the establishment and support of churches and schools in poor or pagan countries. 
What name do we give to the offerings made yearly by the faithful for the support of the Pope and the government of the Church? This offering is called Peter's Pence. It derives its name from the early custom of sending yearly a penny from every house to the successor of St. Peter, as a mark of respect or as an alms for some charity. So, fathers, um, what would you like to add to these answers? Okay, well, the the first point here is uh, just to kind of focus again on the topic is we're talking about uh, characteristics that allow us to to realize which one is the true church. You know, we were talking in the last episode about Protestants and, you know, people figuring out where is the truth. And here the catechism itself tells us the true church has to have certain qualities. And some are called attributes and some are called marks. And first, right now, we're covering the attributes of the church, which are three, authority, infallibility, and indefectibility. And I'll talk a little bit about authority. Authority means that the church has power, has power over persons, over Christians and Catholics, to rule over them, to tell them what to do, to tell them what's wrong, what's right, what they have to believe, what they shouldn't believe. And that goes into the other two attributes as well. The authority of the church is the authority of Christ himself. It's not that men are given authority to to work as men. It's that Christ himself is ruling over the church. And we have to remember as well, the Holy Ghost also rules over the church. So that authority of the church is a divine authority. And that explains why every time that the the devil attacks uh, the true religion with heresy, he always goes against the church, particularly in our day and age. The attack is against the church. Because if you destroy the authority, everything else goes uh, kaput. You know, you have a free reign for whatever evils you want to bring in. If the authority is there, then there's always a refuge to go to. There's always someone to keep track on things. And so it's a fundamental point of the true religion. There has to be an authority. I was just reading yesterday uh, a directory of uh, Pentecostal churches and movements. This is a book just as big as the Bible with hundreds and hundreds of of people, each one starting his own thing. And they were uh, one of the stories they were telling there is when the Assemblies of God first started, they tried to assemble a council to kind of uh, uh, determine what they were going to teach. And they couldn't because everybody said, no, that's precisely what we don't want. We don't want authority uh, that hinders the Holy Ghost. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be each, each, each church on its own. That's a total lie. Is the Church of Christ has to have an authority, has to have a center. It's one-fold. Christ said it himself. It's one-fold. So I, that's the first point I would like to make on authority. Of course, uh, of course, all these two listeners, if they have any questions on these, you know, would be welcome to uh, welcome to send them in. You know, as, as priests, we deal with these things all the time, and the um, ideas become very, very familiar to us. And just like anybody in any profession, you know, sometimes if you're talking to a mechanic, they might use words about your car that you don't understand. It can be the same with a priest. We might use words sometimes that they don't understand. So if there's a question, you know, listeners, and we really enjoy getting questions from from our listeners. Um, and we'll also one other brief topic, just because this is going to come up probably frequently in this chapter, is the words Holy Ghost. I can't remember if we've addressed, addressed this in the previous um, uh, show or not, but People are probably, many of our listeners are probably familiar with the term Holy Spirit. Sometimes people go, well, what's the difference? Really, they mean the same thing. 
it's you know that it has the same meaning it's just that holy spirit came the use of that terminology even though it's an accurate terminology there's nothing wrong with the words they started to be used at the same time as a lot of changes that came in that were bad so people kept held on to holy ghost along with the good things that they should hold on to so it's not something that's a huge a huge deal but just a it's just an older way of saying it older english but those couple comments made there um infallibility the church is infallible so she can't err in teaching faith or morals now there's a couple aspects to this and in the catechisms like the baltimore catechism we find it especially focused on the infallibility of the pope which is very good and necessary but we saw this in the last lesson as well that these catechisms this catechism was written for a particular time and the emphasis is very much on combating protestant errors and that's not so much our need in this day and age uh maybe more so in some places in the united states i know here in canada most of the people it's very rare for me as a priest actually to deal with um people who are coming from a Protestant religion, more it's it's paganism or heathenism really in practice, you know. So one aspect I want to, to draw attention to is the ordinary infallibility. The ordinary and universal magisterium. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give a, a reference here because you know people some people go by the book. If it's in the catechism, I believe it. If it's not I don't, which is a pretty good thing to go by. But so the church in teaching what, us what God has revealed through scripture or tradition, the church is infallible when she does this either by a solemn judgment or her, by her ordinary universal magisterium. Those words, either by a solemn judgment or by her ordinary and universal magisterium, those words come from the third session of the first Vatican Council. So that's the teaching. This is the teaching of the church that there is an Ordinary Universal Magisterium. What is this Ordinary Universal Magisterium? I'm going to read here a a definition of it for you. By this term is meant the day-to-day teaching of the Pope and the bishops in union with him. Even though it does not consist of solemn pronouncements, it too cannot lead the faithful astray. It is necessarily infallible as well. To deny this would mean that the Church could lead astray on a regular basis while remaining faithful only to those truths solemnly declared. And this is an impossibility. So it's it's important uh, concept to have that there is a universal ordinary magisterium. And this is just, to put it in simpler words, is that the church won't fail in its mission. As a whole, the church is not going to lead people to hell. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. Christ is a liar, etc., etc. Definitely. I, I think that's... Uh... That's a point that is very relevant right now for Catholics who are trying to find tradition, as we were talking about in the last episode. Uh, There is an error that is actually quite widespread, and is the idea that that we only have to abide by what the Pope teaches when he speaks solemnly. So basically, the only things that would be binding us in the last 200 years would be that there is the Immaculate Conception and that there is the Assumption of Our Blessed Mother, and basically that's about it. And that's not the case. Um, the Pope may teach in, in several ways infallibly. When I was growing up, I was growing up in the Society of St. Pius X, and you hear ex-cathedra, 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 and, and the same argument. And my idea actually was, and I've said this before, I think, in other shows, 
that the Pope had to actually sit in a particular chair and that that was the chair and that then when he speaks from the chair, that was infallible. And I thought to myself, why don't they just force the Pope to sit in the chair and then he can say if the Vatican, the Second Vatican Council was good or not. And well, that'd be nice if there was such a thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, the, the, the ex-cathedra means that he's speaking as a teacher. And uh, that, that is, there's a lot to cover in that. Again, we keep promising other episodes. That's just to tie you to the show. We will cover <laughs> that in another episode. But just to say it briefly right now, whenever the Pope speaks as a teacher with the intention of binding the church in matters of faith or morals, he is infallible. He, here in the catechism, it says, when he indicates that by certain words, such as we define, we proclaim. And I purposely didn't mention that part because it's not just those words. It can be very many, many different words. It can be done in many different documents. It can be done in encyclicals. It can be done in a brief or a breve. It can be done on a locution. It can be done on a definition. The point is that the Pope is making it clear that he has the intention to bind the whole church in a doctrine of faith or morals as a teacher. And so there are many things that can be infallible in the teachings of the Pope, but not everything is infallible. If the Pope is just speaking as a private person, as a private theologian, or as even just as the Bishop of Rome, that would not be infallible necessarily. He has to be trying to bind the whole church. And Sorry, go ahead, Father. I was just going to say, and not only that, but there is an in-between. You know, it's one thing for him to speak, as they say, over the breakfast table as a private individual. It's another thing for him to speak infallibly as binding the whole church. But there is a a third mode, you might say, where he does speak authoritatively, even though he might not be making an infallible pronouncement. Catholics still have an obligation to listen to what he says. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really important point that's been drawn out by some good Catholic writers recently, that we can't just we can't just ignore what the authority of the church says. Yes. When you read the, well, that that is something we could go into in the future maybe, but when you read the definition of infallibility in the first Vatican council, one of the things that it says is this, it says that it is known that the Holy See, uh, I'm not reading, I'm not saying it verbatim, but it basically says that it is known that the Holy See cannot be tainted by error. Mm-hmm. meaning that the Pope can never, ever be tainted by error. And that means uh, that means to say that we cannot believe in a Pope that is teaching heresy. That is an impossibility. The Church has defined infallibly that that's impossible. The, the Holy See, when it teaches to the Catholics, cannot be tainted by error. It has to be pure in doctrines and morals. The Pope, personally, as it says here in the Catechism, can be a sinner, and there has been popes that there have been popes that are quite uh, evil, you know, quite quite big sinners. But to prove the point even more, even those popes who were very very evil never defined anything against faith or morals, if they were true popes. So that's that's an amazing point of, of church history that even when you see the the popes that were very very evil, even them did not define anything against faith or morals. So that proves a point. If he is a true pope, he cannot be teaching against the faith. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you said about promising future episodes, um, there's a very, very good article on the website of the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen called The Primer on Infallibility. 
gives some really, really good, basic, well-footnoted idea of what infallibility is, when it applies, etc. If we did do a show on infallibility, it would actually form a very good outline. Uh, but you know, and also a kind of a bottom line thing there is, like everything else with the church, it's simple and it's logical. God created this organization, said, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. He who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So basically God said, or, or Lord said, if you reject the church, you reject me, you reject God, you know? And so obviously that institution cannot error in its purpose in, in matters of faith and morals, because then it would just be, it'd be a contradiction and you never have a contradiction with God. So it is really a pretty simple logical necessity um, of what that it has to be infallible. Otherwise it's pointless in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's not just a big self-help program. It's, it's a true religion founded by Christ. Yes. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things when you come to find tradition and, and especially if you come to find uh, the true Catholic position in our day and age, that everything makes sense and you can trace everything back to the past. I like to say to the people that I'm teaching catechism to, I like to tell them, challenge me, ask me the questions, you know, tell me where do you get this from? You know, make sure that I'm not giving you my opinion. Make sure that I'm teaching you what the church taught in the past, because that's what we do. You know, as priests right now in our day and age, we are not teaching our opinions. We are not uh, saying what we would like to say or what, what we feel like saying. We're, we are bound to give you what the church has always given us. And that's because of that, because the church is infallible. Uh, one point that is often overlooked is what Father mentioned, and is the ordinary magisterium of the church. Pius IX, in, a, in the letter Tuas Leventer, which he addressed to theologians of Germany, he made it very clear that Catholics have the duty to accept not only those definitions which are extraordinary, but also those with, which are given in the ordinary magisterium. Um, I, w- I have a bunch of quotes lined up for that, but I think, uh, I think the point has been made clear. Mm-hmm. And maybe I could, I could read just the one quote, a famous quote in, in this area from Pope Pius XII, um, from his encyclical Mani Generis. Quote, it is not to be thought that what is set down in encyclical letters does not demand assent in itself, because in this the popes do not exercise the supreme power of the magisterium. For these matters are taught by the ordinary magisterium, regarding which the following is pertinent. He who hears you, hears me. And usually what is set forth and inculcated in the encyclical letters already pertains to Catholic doctrine. But if the Supreme Pontiffs in their acts, after due consideration, express an opinion on a hitherto controversial matter, it is clear to all that this matter, according to the mind and will of the same Pontiffs, cannot any longer be considered a question of free discussion among the theologians. Mm-hmm. So just a, a good expression of Catholic thought in that regard. Yeah. Um, just to uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, the last comment I would have on this section would be the issue of the temporal power of the Pope. Uh, I had actually a, a person that called me recently, and uh, there are several things that they are questioning about the the current situation. And this person was telling me that he was defending the idea that the Pope had temporal power from the beginning of the church, meaning since St. Peter. And what I said to him is that that's not, that's not the case necessarily. The Pope always had the temporal power potentially, meaning the Pope is able to receive 
temporal power and to exercise it. He is able to receive a kingdom and to act as a king of a kingdom, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that he had it from the beginning in actuality, meaning in, in reality. The Pope received temporal power over certain kingdoms, and this was by the concession of other kings. Uh, we'll leave that to church history. And then he lost that during the Italian Revolution, and that was unlawful. The Pope did have the right to have those material things. And some people might say, well, our Lord says, you know, that they should be poor and that they should not have material things and, and so forth and so forth. And as always, our Lord is speaking of, uh, of certain situations and of a, a council. For the Pope to have material possessions was actually a very profitable thing. It was very good for the church. And that's for the two reasons that they say here. If the Pope has independence, if he has the ability to not be pressured by other governments or rulers, then he can be free to rule the church and to support the church. Imagine, for example, if the Pope actually had the revenue of a whole country, um, you know, the, the taxes that come from it, you know, the, the, the prosperity that comes from the country. He would be able to support missions here and there. He would be able to help persecuted priests in that place or that place. And he did. When the Pope had a kingdom, he would receive in the kingdom persecuted priests. He would finance uh, uh, missions. Not only that, he would finance even wars, defensive wars, against, for example, the Muslims or, or their threats to the West. For example, the, the Battle of Lepanto, the, the Pope actually financed a fleet to go and defend Europe from the invading uh, Muslim forces. So that was a very necessary thing for the church. Yeah, just that it's kind of a, you know, I find it, I find it, um, it's an easy point to attack. I remember one time I was, I was walking with a, a Protestant friend of mine who was a teenager, a couple of friends, and uh, I doubt he'll ever hear this episode, but if he does, so well. And we were walking by a Catholic church, and I, I don't know why I made a comment or something. I think I commented that, that the Catholic church had the most beautiful churches. And he said, well, they've got to do something with the people's money. And mm. I just thought, you know, so many people have these big, beautiful homes. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful home. But I thought, well, if you're going to do anything with money, why not use it for the glory of God, you know, to build a church? And to me, it was just such a so with a comment to make, because what's wrong with a beautiful church built for the honor and glory of God? You know, let's, let's look at the temple. Look at Solomon's temple that God ordered. So that the, and the concept that, oh, it's an easy attack, I guess I would say. But if you really think about it, it's not a, not a very practical thing. And our Lord, our Lord possessed physical things. He wasn't, you know, he was poor, but he did possess things, which is, I mm. think, a good, a good thing to note as well. The ones probably we will have some again. We're promising other episodes to Thai people to <laughs> show. We should probably start writing these down. <laughs> yeah, but actually, one of the ones we're planning on is uh, church history, and there we will be able to to look into that because actually a lot of the cathedrals and churches that were built were built by the people. Yes, you know it was actually a whole village that would all work together for years and years, sometimes generations to build these huge churches. And when you look at how the church worked throughout the centuries, um, there is very little actually. Yet. There are places and times where you can certainly blame some ecclesiasticals of uh, misuse of the money. But in general, if you look at the church history, uh, most of the time the, the money and the power that it had was used for the benefit of humanity, both materially and spiritually. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess those those beautiful churches and cathedrals um, that, as you say, were built by the people, um, those were also um, obviously primarily for God, but they were also the wealth of the people, right? Like the, the richness of the people. Um, would it be wrong to say that, uh, you know, uh, any of those cathedrals, the poorest Catholic could go and pray in and receive the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and actually it's forbidden in canon law to charge an entrance fee to a church, if I remember correctly, you know. So, yeah, it's anybody, can any Catholic, as you said, can go and enjoy that beauty. So it's not like the money has been stolen from them. It's uh, <laughs> It's their own wealth. Yeah, it was even their shelter. Remember the the law of sanctuary, you know? If you were a criminal and you were being persecuted, uh, I'm kind of glad we don't have that. Well, I can say that. But uh, (laughs) it would be be quite a hassle. Yeah. Uh, That was if you were a criminal and you went into the church, you could not be killed or you could not be even (laughs) taken out of the church. You could remain in there until something else would happen. Actually, Uh, sorry. Very interestingly, this happened in Canada. The law of sanctuary still exists in Canada to an extent, I think. I don't know if it's actually on the books. Now I'm going to have to go look it up. But I remember a um, a number of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, it was a family, I think perhaps they were from Syria, and their visa status or their refugee status, whatever it was, had expired, and they were to be forcibly sent back because they had, you know, and they took refuge in the church. It was a Protestant church. But they lived there for, I want to say it was like 14 months or something. And the authorities wouldn't come in. If they left the church, they would have been arrested and deported. But the authorities wouldn't go in to arrest them, arrest them in that church. So an indicator of just where our societies come from, that, that, uh, that law is still, if not on the books, is maybe a part of common law or just such a high precedent in, uh, in our legal history that the authorities were unwilling to violate that. So mm-hmm. if you're in trouble with the law and you've got nowhere else to go, maybe give it a try. <laughs> go, go see Father Zepeda. What's your address, Father? We can send, uh, send all the criminals your way. That'd be interesting. Um, I'll, give it a, I'll give it in another show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, um, I, I, I guess uh, there was one more thing that I wanted to comment on, and it's... Uh, there was one example of this during World War II, actually, where Pope Pius XII, I believe, uh, used gold and, and treasures not only from, from the Vatican, but also from other Catholics in order to deliver some Jews that were being uh, persecuted. He actually gave them, I think the Jews were being extortioned. They were being asked for money in order to leave them alone. And they came and asked the Pope for the money. And the Pope said, uh, come in two days, I think he said. And he gathered the money from whatever they had, and, and he gave them the money just to save their lives. Now, whether if it worked in the fu- you know, future events or not, but the Pope did do that. So that was the spirit of the Church with material possessions. Yeah, that, that reminds me of um, like stories you hear about um, saint bishops and priests who would you know, give the wealth of the church to the poor, like like St. Joseph at Konsevich, um, Thomas Beckett also famously did that. 
that kind of shocked me to hear those stories, like like about St. Joseph at Kuncevich, when somebody came to him for alms and he had nothing else to give, he gave his mitre. But yeah, that's, that's the spirit of, uh, of uh, love for the poor, I guess. Lesson 12 of the Baltimore Catechism will continue on the next episode. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Wire. If you have found this show helpful, please say a prayer for all our collaborators. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels and share with your friends. For questions and comments, you may contact us at thecatholicwire.org.